Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 224. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for this time and for the opportunity to study and to share these topics with one another via this medium of the internet and uh, podcasts and, and, and those types of things, uh, web, web resources. Um, we realize that the topics that we're going to be talking about can be sensitive. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, take control of the uh, conversation and allow people to be um, moved and convicted where you know they need those convictions and where where the um, application fits best. Lord, I don't have all the answers to the questions that are going to rise out of the topics that we're going to be dealing with, but I trust you and I'm uh, grateful to be utilized in this particular fashion to uh, present this topic. So uh, thank you for uh, the students who join me week after week and for those who help support my ministry and my channel. Um, with their prayers and with their uh, their um, attendance in the live classes and for their financial efforts and everything that just goes into helping me to bring this type of material uh, to people around the world. And so what a, what a delight, what a blessing, what a challenge um, to be able to pre present this type of a show week after week. So um, may you receive all the credit for lives that are changed as a result of people who tune in to the um, YouTube broadcast and the iTunes podcasts. And I'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua, Omein. Well, once again, we're um, poised to look at two topics in this live internet studies. My name is Arvind Lyman Hanavi. These are the live internet studies broken up into two major segments. First hour is given over to eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. And the second 30 minutes segment is given over to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Tonight, as you can see on your screen right now, we're ready to start talking about topic number seven in my topical index as i've broken it down into 18 topics so far which is um subject to change as i add topics there um we've already dealt with topic one through six we're now in topic seven the highlighted yellow part that you can see there on your screen excursus the islamic antichrist per joel richardson um but before we talk about the Antichrist, just like we did with the excursus for topic six, I want to make sure that those of you who are watching these YouTube videos and listening to these podcasts are, are at a place where you understand the, the true, the genuine, right? My plea is that you would have a, a genuine encounter with the real Messiah, the real Christ, the genuine deal, the true um, biblical Christ before you start uh, jumping into um, studies on who the Antichrist is. And so for that, I'm going to play a video, and it's on the New Covenant relationship, the New Covenant reality that we as believers can experience if you accept the genuine Christ. So watch this short little video first, and then after that, we will jump right into our topic on the Antichrist, okay? May you be blessed. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and the Bible. Copyright Tate Torah Ministries 2015, all rights reserved. Let's take a look at our question for tonight. The question is, what is the New Covenant? 
Yes, this is a very important topic, so let's take our time on this one tonight. Using a computer-assisted word search of the ESV version of the Bible, uh, this term New Covenant shows up in eight verses, Jeremiah 31, 31, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Hebrews 8, 8, 8, 13, 9, 15, and 12, 24. Those are the places that this term shows up. Since the truths of the apostolic writings are rooted in the theology of the Tanakh, I'm going to comment on Jeremiah 31.31 passage first. Let's just hit that one first, and then we'll work from the Jeremiah passage towards the other passages. God says this new covenant will not be like the old covenant of, uh, in this very important way in 2 Corinthians 3.14. This new covenant with national Israel will not simply be articulated to the entire nation as external written letters, read 2 Corinthians 3.6. Rather, God will put his covenant laws and promises into their hearts as a matter of national election. That's our Jeremiah 31, 31, 33 reference all over again. The effect is that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 34. So we see God is making a change in national Israel. New Covenant states that God will forgive their sins of the people since their consciences will have been cleansed via their faith in Yeshua's sacrifice, Hebrews 9, 15, 10, 14, 17, and 18. No more sin debt under the New Covenant. We're free from that. In plain English, Jeremiah is prophesying about the day when the people of Israel will be characterized as saved on a national level. And that's what I mean by no more sin debt. In God's eyes, they, the sin debt has been wiped clear. The books have been cleared. And this salvation will result in permanent forgiveness of sin and true covenant-keeping obedience on their part. Ezekiel 11.19 as well as 36.27. Look up those passages where God talks about taking out this heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. In one sense, because this new covenant is made exclusively with national Israel, it awaits future fulfillment. For indeed, everyone in national Israel obviously does not yet know the Lord in the truest covenantal sense described by the Bible. Read Romans 10, 21, and we can see that. In fact, we exegeted Romans 10 in our last week's study. And yet, at this very moment, Gentiles are being brought into Israel's new covenant via faith in Yeshua, Romans 11, 19 and 20. The new covenant has been appropriated by anyone who has placed their genuine faith in Yeshua, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Read Luke 22, 20, as well as Hebrews 9, 15. So, what does this look like in terms of remnant? We've got national Israel as one big blue circle. We've got uh, Gentile nations is one big red circle, and when we overlap the two, we've got spiritual and lasting Israel right there in the middle. So Jesus is a doorway to spiritual and lasting covenant membership. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. That's just a primer. In fact, since Yeshua is the sole mediator of the new covenant for salvation, personal or corporate, John 14, 6, this means every person in every age is a part of the new covenant, and they must participate in the new covenant via Yeshua's mediation if they wish to be saved from the wrath of God. God. That's how new covenant works. It's only done through Yeshua. This implies that the new covenant is not something that's time bound. And you're thinking, huh? All right, all right. Let me flesh this one out a little bit because this one's a little bit challenging for most of us who've been taught that it's only through Jesus. All of salvation history revolves around the cross event of the first century. Uh, read Galatians 4, 4 through 7. All of salvation history revolves around Yeshua. It all points to what Yeshua did at Calvary. So what are our conclusions so far from this slide? What is the New Covenant? Borrowing terminology from Messianic Jewish author Tim Haig, I'm going to summarize my answer. 
Jeremiah's new covenant is the fullness and internalization of the Mosaic covenant on a national scale, for it is characterized by the phrase, quote, I will write the Torah upon their hearts, end quote. Notice it's the Mosaic covenant that actually is getting, that's written on the heart of national Israel. It's not some brand new Johnny-come-lately uh, set of scriptures per se. The very Torah that Israel failed to keep will in the new covenant be written on Israel's heart by the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 11, 19, and Ezekiel 36, 27. It's the Spirit using the Torah on the heart that brings about the, the desired effect that God is uh, intending. What is new or unique about this covenant is that its future fulfillment will mark the only time in history when the nation as a whole walks by genuine forgiveness of sins, read Hebrews 9.15, and genuine faith in the Messiah, read Romans 11.26 and 27. So that's what's new or unique, meaning hasn't happened yet, still future. Israel hasn't hasn't yet, uh, as a corporate people group, attained to uh, walking in genuine forgiveness of sins as a, as a nation. So let's look at those circles again, national Israel, Gentile nations overlapping with remnant Israel, aka the church right in the middle. Paul makes it clear that a remnant of true believers has existed in every generation. Read Romans 11, 1-6, right? The remnant has existed everywhere. Therefore, they must have uh, participated in the faith that Jeremiah prophesies for the whole nation in the future. You guys understand what I mean by that? Uh, the remnant is just a slice, a taste of what is to come. It's the earnest, it's the down payment of what we're going to see later. This remnant, including Gentiles, who've been attached to Israel through their saving faith, thus participate in the new covenant as the first fruits of the final harvest, read Romans 8, 23. So the remnant is so important for us to understand because it represents the greater whole finally coming into the fullness of what God has. So. Let me make it as clear as possible so that there are no misunderstandings for people who are used to watching this slide and looking at this remnant Israel uh, diagram where I've got gentle nations on one side, national Israel. People who think that I'm trying to teach that the church is replacing Israel because I say that Gentile believers become a part of Israel at the remnant Israel level. I'm not teaching any such nonsense. No replacement theology, no supersessionism, no dispensationalism. Just throw that all out. Remnant theology is what I'm teaching here, okay? Remnant Israel of old equals new covenant. The church equals new covenant. Therefore, any saved person, past, present, or future, equals new covenant. You guys catch it there? Does it make sense now? New covenant is a saved person. Now, we're going to flesh this out a little later when we look at the longer uh, podcast. So, because Yeshua has always been the only way to salvation, Acts 4.12, the new covenant reality cannot be something that awaited his coming, though surely his saving work is the means by which the new covenant is realized. Read Luke 22.20. Understand what I mean there? He's the mediator, but it's not something that that awaited till his time at the cross event. In other words, people could become saved even before he uh, died on the cross. The new covenant is therefore not time-bound. And that's so important for us to actualize. So let's finalize our slides for us tonight. Wherever there's genuine faith in Yeshua, and praise God that it's worldwide. Whenever the Torah is written on the heart, and praise God that it's the Holy Spirit that writes the Torah on our hearts. There, the new covenant is active. Amen? 
Amen. Okay, that'll do it for the video on the New Covenant reality. What is the New Covenant? Are you a part of the New Covenant? Are you a member of the New Covenant reality that is offered exclusively through Yeshua, the Messiah, through Jesus Christ? I hope you are. Okay, that'll do it for the video on the New Covenant reality. What is the New Covenant? Are you a part of the New Covenant? Are you a member of the New Covenant reality that is offered exclusively? through Yeshua, the Messiah, through Jesus Christ? I hope you are. Well, we're going to be talking about Antichrist tonight, and we want to make sure that the topic that I'm introducing tonight, this is not an expose on Islam. This is not um, a critique of the religion of, of Muslims or anything like that. I want to make sure that those of you who are listening are not misinterpreting or misunderstanding what I'm going to be talking about from this point for the next few weeks. To be sure, I'm no subject matter expert on Islam or Muslim theology or eschatology or anything like that. And I'm not even slamming the religion. This is this is not that type of video or podcast presentation. I'm not out to uh, throw a religion under the bus. Um, all religions have their own perception and perspective on what is true and what is not true. Um, and God allows us to make choices, free will, right? We're all free will agents, so that we all come to truth with the same um, options, meaning it's our own free choice, whether we accept what God's truth teaches or whether we reject it. So on that note, we're going to begin talking about topics that, again, I'm not a subject matter expert on, so I, if you um, have questions that are more what I call deep dive type questions. I'll do my best to field those if you put them in the YouTube comments or send me emails and things like that. But for the most part, I'm going to defer you to other experts uh, in these particular fields. So we're going to be talking about Antichrist. And so before I get started, though, let me point you to some of the resources that I have uh, discovered on my own when it comes to um, other Bible teachers that are that from my perspective are well trusted they're well known they're well respected and they have um discussed this particular issue of another model of who's the antichrist right we already talked about kind of the european model looking at uh, uh robert van campen i believe he takes what we call a european model where he believes antichrist is going to rise out of a european union or some um what we might consider kind of a western type of of a coalition of of um nations and things like that but there are other teachers who have brought an alternate uh, perspective on the identity of antichrist so this is a an expose on antichrist and his um identity in the bible this is not an expose on islam or anything like that we're just bringing islam into this just temporarily because of the uh fact that they have their own eschatology but uh, first and foremost, as you can see on your screen right now, I did a Google search for this gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson. He wrote, he literally wrote the book on the Islamic Antichrist. That's the name of the book. I'll flash a little screen grab later on. Should have had it pulled up earlier, but he has a book called the Islamic Antichrist, and it's available on uh, Amazon and other places. Let me scroll down through his this screen grab and see if it shows uh, the book. Um, if it doesn't, I'll show you some more a little bit later on. All right, I'm not saying I'm just seeing pictures of him so far, but um, he has a uh, a resource that it's 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 recommended. Go out and get the book. Okay, you know, buy it from uh, from Amazon.com or go to his website. As you can see on my screen right now, there's a second resource called Joel'sTrumpet.com. Joel'sTrumpet.com, and um, 
right there in his free resources. And this is always great when you have a Christian uh, teacher who gives things away, right? Because that fits my budget. Um, right there in the free resources, you can see right on the screen right now. Let me even blow it up. No, that doesn't work. Um, right there, the very first uh, resource under his free resources, Islamic Antichrist. And it comes in multiple languages there. I mean, uh, like, look at that. Um, quite a few languages, including Hebrew, Russian, uh, Farsi, Indonesian, you know, Arabic, even Korean. Wow, look at that. So you can read his book online for free straight from his own website. If I clicked on that um, link, it would open up a PDF document, a couple hundred pages, 200, 300 pages, I can't remember. But there's another resource that's also put together by um, uh, jo uh, Mr. Richardson and, and friends that help contribute to this topic. And it's... Um, a website called answeringislam.org, uh, kind of a, 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 what we might call um, evangelical outreach to is uh, to Muslims, um, trying to bring them into a relationship, uh, a saving relationship with Yeshua and with God. And in that, um, on that webpage, he uploaded his book also in, in HTML format. I think that this came first before he actually put together the book, because when I read uh, excerpts from this, which we're going to be doing tonight, it, it reads as if this is kind of more of a, a preliminary draft web version. And then he finally put together the draft that's the book version or the PDF version. But either way, it's available in those two places for free if you can't afford to get it off of Amazon or whatnot. But those are some resources. That's Joel Richardson. We'll be looking at that. Another um, resource that I can point you to, a well-weathered a well resource, trusted resource, reliable resource, is um, John MacArthur, right? Everyone's familiar with him. I've mentioned him in my own studies here, John MacArthur. He's one of my favorites, my own personal favorites. I've grown up listening to his sermons, and I've come to trust him, even though he doesn't take the pro-Torah or pro-Nomian approach, where he believes that uh, the Torah is applicable for New Testament Christians, that I can dismiss that aspect of his um, theology, because what else? The, the rest of what he brings to the table of discussion is absolutely meat, not milk, but meat for the Christian believer. And he has a study on this idea of Islamic Antichrist and Islam eschatology and how Christians need to be aware of this idea. And that's kind of why I'm bringing it into my own studies is for awareness purpose as well. The Grim Reality of the Last Days is the name of one of the sermons that he um, put out very recently, 2011. I say very recent, I mean. Um, within the perspective of how many sermons that he produces year after year. So there's a, as you can see on your screen, there's a YouTube video. It's about 45 minutes long, if I remember from when I watched it. There's an audio MP3 file. And then there's actually right on your screen, as you can see, the transcript of the video. If you're not into watching your theology or listening, if you're one of those who prefers to read things so you can stop and digest and look up things and fact check. And, and that's a better way. Um, or if you want to pull quotes for your own uh, personal studies and you know add them to your own blogs or uh, send snippets to your friends on email, then here's the uh, transcript of his uh, sermon uh, where he talks about this uh, Islamic Antichrist topic. Another resource, uh, Zion's Hope. I've mentioned in them before as well. Um, I've mentioned that I have this eschatology book known as The Sign by Robert Van Campen, which I highly recommend. Well, Robert Van Campen, if I if I remember correctly, is a student of of um, Marv Rosenthal, 
who wrote the um, famous book, uh, The Pre-Wrath Raptor of the Church. Well, this is the ministry of Marv Rosenthal. As you can see on the screen uh, over here on the right side, uh, Marv is right there. And this ministry, Zion's Hope, has a whole section on this idea of, of eschatology from the... Um, Muslim perspective. And so you can see as I'm scrolling down the screen, you can see some of the thumbnails of their uh, topics. And as I scroll a little, get a little bit farther down, then you can see, uh, oh, maybe I already, uh, maybe I already hit it earlier. Becoming Lawless One, Covenants, Splendor of Glory. Anyway, um, I believe this is the, the right page. If not, you can uh, just type in a search there. Good for you. And, um, and just to start seeing videos on that particular to the topic. Uh, let me find one. Antiochus and Antichrist. There's one. We already talked about that, right? Uh, here we go. Uh, Islamic eschatology with Bob Hunt. Um, like a four-part uh, uh, video series and things like that. So, uh, the Islamic Antichrist and the Book of Daniel. Things like that. So, uh, do yourself a favor and avail yourself of these resources. Um, I'll put these links in the description of the video so that you can find them there. And then uh, two more resources, and then we'll jump into my own study. Another resource that I am uh, that I came across when I was doing my research is uh, none other than Tim, none other than Tim Hague, right? My own personal favorite uh, Torah teacher, Bible teacher, Messianic author. Um, it, he just doesn't get more. It doesn't just doesn't get more solid than Tim Hague in my experience. Um, and so he has a, a video series out, audio and video, entitled uh, "Interpreting Daniel's Prophecy" that you can purchase from his uh, uh, TorahResource.com uh, web resource. And as I'm scrolling down the page, you can see um, it's it's a look at the entire book of Daniel, you know, going chapter by chapter. And when he gets down to Daniel chapter starting to get more heavily into Daniel chapter 7 and following 8, 9, 10, and through the rest of the book, he starts introducing this idea of Antichrist figures and Islamic Antichrist comes up. I remember listening to that when I, uh, when I purchased that particular resource. So uh, check that out as well. And then lastly, uh, last but not least, my good friend Rabbi Eduardo um, of Beth El Gibor, uh, congregation messian congregation in in philadelphia uh good friends of mine who join me week after week in my live studies um rabbi ed has been uh on my show a few different times uh and he just recently and when i say recently as of this youtube uh video as of this as of this date of recording uh july 2nd 2023 he has a video out on his website i'm sorry on his youtube channel which is um, radar apologetics and uh, the video as you can see uh, on the, from the thumbnail right there on the screen is uh, Antichrist and Islam and then Jewish New Moon Messiah and Hebrew prayers return of the dark return of Darth Nugget all right um, the first 20 minutes of his YouTube video which is uh, an hour and a half long is given over to this topic of is of uh, Antichrist and Islam and things like that so um, go back and give that a listen as well. I'll put a link to it in my description below, along with all the other, all the other resources like I mentioned earlier. Okay, so uh, in case you're somewhat of a newcomer to this game, so let's go back to my own uh, studies now. I have to admit that I myself am a little new to this uh, concept. I've just only been introduced to this idea of an Islamic Antichrist just this year 
honestly. And I did a uh, an eschatology study, you know, over 20 years ago. And back then, I never heard of this idea. I never knew that that this existed, and that it was something that was within Christian circles as well as uh, Islamic discussions. But now I'm in the know, so don't beat yourself up if this is brand new to you. You're like, what, Ariel? I've never heard of this. What are you making? Where are you making this up? Where are you pulling this out of? Are you pulling this out of left field? No, didn't make it up. But since I've been exposed to it now this year, and it's been a few months now since I've been, uh, since I started prepping and we've been doing these eschatology studies on the end times, I've had a chance to now do some of my, my own research and put together some material. So with that, let's jump into... Uh, I wrote this very, very short essay some time back. Um, it's got this very long name. It's called Exploring Parallels and Contrasts, the Islamic Mahdi, the Muslim Jesus Isa, and the Dajjal in relation to the biblical Antichrist, false prophet, and Jesus Christ. Right? It's this very, very short six-paragraph um, essay that we're going to be reading tonight. So this will be the introduction. All right? Again, let me precursor. Let me... Let me um, forewarn you or whatnot. This is not an expose on Islam. This is not a slam on the religion of, of the Muslims. This is not some type of deep dive into um, Islamic es eschatology. Um, this is just a very surface level re review of a biblical topic that has impact on another religion. That if, when we think about all the comparative world religions that are out there, very, very few of them have any type of antichrist figure or or um, uh, perspective of their end times. Many many religions don't even really have a kind of a developed eschatology at all. Um, but when you think think about the three major Abrahamic religions, right, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, etc., then all three of them have kind of end time scenarios, eschatology, and at least two of those, Christianity and Islam, have majorly developed antichrist figures in their eschatology so we have to bring this topic up because of that um for that reason so that being said let's uh jump right into this uh short little essay i'll go ahead and read this and then we'll jump into mr richard richardson's information all right introduction islamic eschatology and biblical prophecy offer distinct yet interconnected narratives concerning the end times. These are my own thoughts. Within these traditions, figures such as the Islamic Mahdi, the Muslim Jesus Isa, and the Dajjal, these are again um, <clears throat> figures that we're going to be lightly dealing with. This is not a deep dive. You're going to have to do your own research if you want to get more information. But these three figures will come up in our um, in our studies just briefly. These three figures uh, possess intriguing parallels and contrasts with their biblical counterparts, the Antichrist, false prophet, and Jesus Christ himself. So that's why we're even talking about this. Otherwise, honestly, I have no... I have no axe to grind with other religions. You know, this channel is all about um, talking about Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, Messianic Judaism, Christianity. Those are my main focuses. I don't go. I don't go on the target, uh, on the attack after other religions per se. This is not, that's not really the scope of my channel. I'm not out to to, to throw other religions under the bus. Um, they have their um, opportunity to. Uh, seek truth, discover truth, and present truth just like I do. And so um, they're going to have to contend with what the Bible teaches in terms of what they believe, just like I have to as well. So 
Uh, everyone just keep that in mind. Let me continue. As a Trinitarian Bible student, this is my, these are my own thoughts, and teacher who is grounded in biblical teachings, this short essay will aim to delve into some of these theological connections and divergences, right? Remember, we're looking at um, Christianity's view of end times, Antichrist, and how there are some interesting parallels within um, Muslim eschatology. And what I'd hope to do is to begin shedding some light on the significance of these figures within Islamic and Christian eschatological frameworks. Again, I am not a Muslim apologist, and I'm not even someone who is equipped to do um, Muslim um, evangelizing, or, or uh, you know, I, I could, I'm not prepared to have some type of debate with uh, someone who is a, a follower of Islam or anything like that. But to the degree that I believe the Bible and I and that I'm rooted and grounded in what in God's word and what I believe is truth, then I'm going to defend myself and stand my ground if someone were to bring up an uh, an argument against um, the truth of what the Bible says. So, this next uh, short paragraph here is entitled "The Mahdi and the Antichrist." Um, M A H D I. I'm saying Mah where there's kind of a breathy sound on the H part, Mahdi. But if you listen to other teachers, they're just going to say either Mahdi or there's another alternate pronunciation that you'll hear about in a moment. So, in Islamic eschatology, the Mahdi or alternate spelling Mehdi with an E instead of an A, uh, sometimes referred to as the 12th Imam, he emerges as a messianic figure that's expected to restore justice and righteousness. And this comes straight out of uh, Islamic eschatology. I'm not encouraging you to go out and read the Quran, but if you want to fact-check fact check, uh, some of what I'm talking about here, then this is the way to do it. You can go back and look these things up on your own. I go on to say, however, when compared to the biblical Antichrist, a striking contrast arises. The Antichrist embodies a malevolent force who opposes Christ and deceives humanity, right? We've been talking about the Antichrist through the lens of um, Robert Van Campen, which is the typical kind of um, historical European Antichrist, rises out of a, maybe a more Western type of power, European Union, or revived Roman Empire, something to that effect. And to that degree, the Antichrist is seen as some figure who's highly political, but religious at the same time, and... Um, probably has the power to broker some sort of peace treaty with the eastern the countries in the middle east but he himself coming from the west as a um as a mediator kind of like we see and i'll flash a little screen uh, grabs on a uh, little pictures on the screen for you to kind of identify like we've seen in the past where you have a um an american president who will travel to the middle east and stand between uh, Israel's leader on one side and maybe the Palestinian leader on the other side and shake hands with the two gentlemen. And so you have all three of them in the picture. And this shows that even though the Middle East has its conflict, the West is is willing and able to get involved and uh, be at the table as a kind of a neutral party, right? And so within that model of the European slash western version of the antichrist we can see the antichrist coming from the third party perspective outside trying to broker a peace treaty between israel and her muslim or slash arab neighbors however when we start dealing with the 
Islamic model of Antichrist, we're talking about a leader that's possibly coming from within their own ranks. How would that work out? How does he broker peace between Israel and his own people group or his own religious um, you know, party group? We'll, we'll see how that works out. So I go on to say that while the Mahdi seeks to bring about peace, I'm sorry, um, the, the, the parallel slash contrast between the biblical Antichrist and the Mahdi is that <clears throat> the Antichrist, even though he seems like a man of peace at first, in the end, he turns out to be a man of war, a man of destruction, a man of death. The Bible describes him as this person who deceives with his 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 lies. He he's very crafty in how he dupes people into believing that he's bringing peace and prosperity, but he's going to actually turn on the people that he even cut a deal with and seek to annihilate them, wipe them out, particularly the Jewish people, slaughtering millions of Jews when the time comes. And then also turning his sight on Christians as well, right? Read Revelation chapter 12. So, the Antichrist being empowered by Satan himself, we could say that the Antichrist is Satan incarnate. According to the biblical narrative, he's a bad guy. He starts out as a good guy. Looks like someone who came from even, maybe even, maybe even Christian ranks, Christian background, if we look at the European model. You know, maybe he's some type of, of um, religious leader or political leader or maybe a pope type figure that's what people kind of suppose but then he turns right he he shows his true face he takes the mask off, mask of um the sky is off his deception and his deception is seen for what it is but according to the um islamic model their mahdi is actually a good guy so look at this the mahdi seeks to bring about peace and divine guidance the antichrist by comparison, symbolizes rebelling against God's truth. So in their model, the Mahdi is a good guy. He's going to right the wrongs. I continue. These divergent roles underline the essential distinction, I say, between this character that we're studying known as the Islamic, the Antichrist, right? The Islamic expectation of a guided leader or guided one. I say the literal translation of the Arabic Mahdi is the guided one or the guided leader. Um, so we got these these uh, distinctions between this Mahdi in their eschatological teachings and, I say, the biblical understanding of a deceptive adversary. So, are you understanding the first of three parallel-slash-contrasting figures within these two great religious um, uh uh, religious institutions in the world today, right? Um, Christianity has billions of followers around the world, but so does Islam, right? Even if you don't take a position where you factor in an Islamic antichrist, even if you think, well, that's not for me, I'm just going to stick with the European model, you still have to contend with Islam as a major player on the scene at the end of days, because we're now living in these end days, and Islam is on the scene, and they don't seem to be trending in the direction of disappearing from the world anytime soon. Last time I checked, it's the opposite. They're trending towards growth. They are on the uprise. They are uh, becoming fast becoming the um, number one religion as far as numbers in the world today. You know, the, the old slogan goes, uh, uh, "Is today's uh, what is it? Something to the effect of uh, Islam is Muslims say is 
Islam is our religion today and your religion tomorrow. I'm, I'm butchering that, but that's the effect of what, what they firmly believe is that Islam is going to grow and grow and grow. And, um, and there are significant Western countries that are now becoming more influenced by Sharia law and, and, and Islamic policies. And, and so no matter which model you take, if you're a Bible student of eschatology, you simply cannot put your head in the sand and ignore the topic of Islam in the end days. How is that going to factor in? Is is Christianity going to overthrow that? Is it going to overtake it? Um, is Islam going to disappear and dry up like other religions have done before or or movements in the earth today? Um, how does that factor into the end times? You know, what what's the Antichrist going to have to do with Islam when the time comes? So we need to look at these topics seriously. Let's look at the next uh, topic on my list here. The Muslim Jesus, Esau, and the false prophet. Believe it or not, Islam has their own version of Jesus. But he's not the same Jesus of the Bible. So now let's talk about um, some contrast between their version of Jesus and the false prophet mentioned in the book of Revelation. So this is what I discovered, and this is my own research uh, that I'm bringing to the table of discussion. The Islamic belief in the return of Esau, or Jesus, holds parallels with the biblical concept of the false prophet mentioned in the book of Revelation. So yeah, that's where they factor him in. Let's keep reading. Islamic tradition reveres Esau, or Jesus, as a prophet who will return to guide believers and defeat their enemy known as the Dajjal. We'll talk about him in a moment. So uh, Jesus shows up and he's got this enemy called the Dajjal and they do battle. Let's keep reading. Conversely, when we look at the Bible, the false prophet in biblical prophecy represents a figure who promotes false teachings and supports the Antichrist's agenda. So if you're a good standing Muslim, right, you are a religious uh, Muslim, a follower of the religion of Islam, and you, you're not into radicalized Islam, right? You're not all about jihad. You're not all about blowing things up. And if you're not about that, but you're just a good standing Muslim, you want to see peace with your neighbors, just like we all do. You just want to look out for your well-being. You just want to provide for your family. You want to um, have a right relationship with God or Allah, as you would call him. Well, then I could see how that when you read through your own Bible, I'm sorry, your own religious writings, right? The Quran and you're, you encounter these major signs that we're talking about, these three figures, right? Then you're not going to be looking at the world through the lens of, hey, let's go out and kill everybody so we can establish uh, Islamic world order or something like that. Rather, we're, we're looking at these topics and really, you're just looking at, at your religion like other people look at their religion. It brings peace to you. It brings comfort to you. It's what you firmly believe. It's what you've been raised on. And so um, you just want to get along with those who don't follow your religion. But it would be nice if they um, converted to your religion. I mean, if they believed in what you believed in. Isn't that what we, we teach as Christians as well? If everyone else would just believe what we believe, then the world would seem to be a better place, right? That's kind of the way we Christians kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, generalize things. And so it makes sense that as we're looking at these figures uh, within um, eschatology and eschatological models of who the end time players will be, that each religion is going to have their own versions of their good guys and their bad guys. What we're looking at, however, is that there's a, a very odd parallel slash contrast between what 
Islam believes are the good guys and what are the bad guys compared to Christianity's version of the good guys and the bad guys. And they're almost like mere opposites, which would make sense. So let's keep reading. I go on to say in my own research, while in my own essay here, while both Esau, that is Jesus, and the false prophet involve a return and exert influence in the end times, their roles and missions differ fundamentally. This is at least what I have um, ascertained as I did this, this research when I put this together a few months back. Esau is regarded as the true Messiah, while the false prophet epitomizes falsehood and leads people astray. So, I guess you could say, when it comes to these two characters, the Muslim Jesus known as Esau, that's the Arabic way of saying Jesus, Esau, um, in this particular discussion right now, then at least both Christians and Muslims agree that the false prophet is a bad guy in the story. In this particular narrative, the, the false prophet is someone who seeks to lead people astray and to deceive people versus Esau, their version of Jesus, is a champion. He's a good guy. And in Christianity, Jesus is also a champion. He's a good guy. So, part of their narratives, what I'm trying to uh, explain to you, is that in part of the narratives, and we're looking at the parallels and the comparisons and contrasts, part of the narratives have almost one-to-one -one correlating, overlapping uh, concepts where they match up, where they line up, where, you know, if I were to have a conversation with a Muslim, I might say, what do you think about Jesus? Isn't he, isn't he a great guy? Isn't he a great prophet? And, th and they would, according to their own eschatology, say, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, we can't wait to till he returns. We're looking forward to his return as well to help usher in world peace and, and prosperity and things like that. And I'm thinking, wow, is this guy a Christian? No, he's, he's a Muslim. But you have to remember that their eschatology and their understanding of end-time events has a version of Jesus that brings in peace and prosperity, and he's a good guy in their story, just like Jesus is a good guy in our story. And conversely, um, or comparatively, they're, one of their bad guys is the false prophet, or at least when they read the Bible, if they're familiar with the, who the false prophet is, he's a bad guy. All right, there's one other person, as I did my um, uh, short little essay here, the Dajjal and Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm not saying that name correctly, um, if you've heard it pronounced like Dajjal or um, Dajjal or, or something to that effect, I apologize. Dajjal is how I've heard it uh, pronounced uh, in all the research that I have encountered. So, let's read about him. The Islamic Dajjal, often considered the false messiah by Islam, by the way, bears interesting parallels with Jesus Christ in Christian belief. So here we have, there's kind of, this is where it gets a little confusing, a little challenging. In Islam, they've got their version of Jesus, which I'm going to try my best to keep referring to him as either the Muslim Jesus, or sometimes I'll call him Isa, um, or the Muslim Isa, or something like that, or the, I'll, I'll be careful to distinguish, give you the context, the Muslim Jesus. They have their version of Jesus, which is called the Muslim Jesus, and then there's Christianity's version of Jesus, which is the biblical Jesus. But in Islamic eschatology, there's also a, a bad guy who's the Dajjal. He's the, he's the protagonist. I'm sorry, he's the antagonist. He's the bad guy. He's the, he's the enemy. And he actually has a comparison one-to-one -one with our own Jesus as well. So we, they have their Jesus and we have our Jesus, but that's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Instead, their Dajjal and our Jesus, we Christians, Jesus, that's where the one-to-one -one parallel takes place. So don't get confused.
All right, so there's a parallel there between the Dajjal and the um, Islamic, uh, uh, Islamic Dajjal and the Christian Jesus. However, I say in my little um, uh, essay here, the stark contrast lies in their nature and purpose. The Dajjal seeks to deceive and lead people astray, while Jesus Christ, as we know, embodies divine truth and redemption. So, you have to be careful when you're having these discussions with people about these particular topics. Um, if you're going to be talking about Jesus Christ in Islamic circles, then you need to be careful to distinguish, are you referring to the Islamic Jesus, or are you referring to the Biblical Jesus? And then, within the scope of that discussion, you're likely to bring up some uh, conversation about, oh yeah, the Dajjal and Jesus do combat with one another or the dajjal and you're thinking what wait a minute isn't jesus one of the good guys in your prophecy you're like yeah of course so you just have to be careful where the conversation goes where the context is they have their own version of jesus whom they call esau and we have our version of jesus and they have their version of a bad guy called the dajjal which we don't have a figure called the dajjal but for us the, the Dajjal would be actually maybe the Antichrist or the Mahdi or somebody like that. So it can get really wonky, a little bit challenging. Just and I'll try to make, make it less confusing during these particular discussions. Let's keep reading my own uh, short essay here. Christian tradition teaches that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save humanity through his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Remember... As I keep interjecting, the biblical Jesus is vastly different from the Islamic version of Jesus. Um, we'll talk about this in time, so don't get uh, too terribly upset if I'm not hitting it and, and, and developing it right now. But just in um, by way of a primer or teaser, the Islamic version of Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not divine. He's not God incarnate. He's a man. He's a prophet. He's a good man. But... Not only is he not the Son of God, and not only did he not uh, represent the incarnated God, right? God incarnate, God veiled in flesh, Son of God, Son of Man, etc. But also, this version of Jesus in Islamic circles didn't even die. He hung on the cross, but he got pulled down before he died. So he was hung up there, that's true, but he did not die. He actually was carried bodily alive, <clears throat> like Elijah, up into heaven by Allah, his father, or in Islamic tradition, and he was he now waits in heaven next to God for God or Allah to send him back to earth someday to join the Mahdi and be the Mahdi's right-hand man in defeating the Dajjal. Right? So the two of them are going to be like you know Batman and Robin. They're going to fight against the Dajjal, who would be like the Joker, I guess. So using my little um analogy here batman is the mahdi he's the leader of the dynamic duo robin is the islamic jesus isa he's his his lesser partner's junior partner his lesser rank partner and the two of them are going to do battle against the dajjal who is the joker in my little analogy here okay so hope you're not losing um sight of what we're talking about speaking about this this joker character this bad guy this dajjal um I'm sorry, uh, uh, speaking about the true biblical Jesus, his second coming signifies the ultimate triumph of righteousness, right? That's what we read about in the Bible. In contrast, however, according to Islamic theology, the Dajjal represents falsehood 
and he challenges the faith of believers. Indeed, this is going to get really, really um, kind of unsettling for some of you when the, when we come time to talk about this. But according to Islamic theology, as far as I understand, the Dajjal is actually going to declare himself to be the true Messiah. And he's actually going to mislead many, many Jews and Christians into following after him. And this is according to Islamic theology. He's going to uh, deceive people. And so in so doing, because he is a great deceiver, his name Dajjal means the deceiver, then he needs to be dealt with by someone who's righteous, i.e. the Mahdi and the Islamic Jesus, right? Remember the Batman and Robin uh, an analogous uh, pair of the good guys? They have to do battle against this deceiver, this Dajjal, who's leading Christians and Jews astray in the end days. He's who's declaring himself to be Jesus and uh converting them to his version of religion which is non-islam right so in closing to this final uh this final paragraph on uh this parallel and contrast between the dajjal and uh the biblical jesus thus while both figures evoke messianic themes they embody opposing forces of good and evil so that's important to follow along with as we're going to be looking at. Primarily, we're going to have discussions on the Mahdi. I'm not going to get too deep into the Islamic Jesus and the Dajjal. I'm primarily going to be focusing on the Antichrist figure in Islamic circles, which, again, this is where it gets a little challenging. They have a model of Antichrist in their theology, in their eschatological teachings, and within their, their religious writings, which... Um, Oddly enough, is similar to other religions where they have two kind of branches of of authoritative uh, scriptures or authoritative writings that speak to their religious tradition. Like Catholicism has the Bible plus Catholic tradition. You have um, uh, Judaism, which has the Torah and then rabbinic writings like the Talmud, etc. So you have two branches or two legs of resources that they that they draw from islam has that similar feature they have the quran which is their religious writings on the one hand and then they have what are known as the hadith the um the revelations that were uh uh added uh alongside of that so um the quran and the hadith uh form their kind of two branch or two leg theology and within those writings those two branches of their theology we have the development of these characters well the part that makes it a little challenging for us as christians as we're interacting with this topic again this is not a deep dive so do your own research um do your own lookups right go back and do all your fact checking to see if what i'm saying is has some some semblance of truth here it's my own research so i could be flawed right i'm not an expert in this area um but what the part that I found personally that makes it a little bit challenging is that in Islamic discussions, their version of the good guy, the Mahdi, corresponds to what Christians uh, believe is the Antichrist. And yet Islam has their own Antichrist called the Dajjal that we Christians don't really even talk about at all um, unless we we would have a discussion and say that parallels our own Jesus. So there's some there's some challenges, and of course, because they have their own Jesus and we have our own Jesus, but our Jesus corresponds to their Dajjal, not to their Jesus. It's not a parallel between our Jesus and their Jesus. Their Jesus parallels to our false prophet, whereas 
our Jesus parallels to their Dajjal. So let me read my conclusion in case you got lost in the discussion. All right, so here's the conclusion to this short little um, essay that I put together some time ago. Exploring the parallels and contrasts between the Islamic figures of the Mahdi, Isa, and the Dajjal, and their biblical counterparts, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Jesus Christ, right? Did you catch that? Make sure you're following along, otherwise you're going to get lost here. Islam has three figures. They have the Mahdi, they have Isa, who is Jesus in Arabic, and Dajjal. Those are their three figures. The first two are the good guys, and the last one is the bad guy. Mahdi, Isa, good guys, Dajjal, bad, according to Islamic theology. In Christianity, in biblical theology, eschatology, we have three figures that uh, that show up on the scene in the end days as well eschatological three men that are prominent we have the antichrist we have false prophet and we have jesus christ and the parallel is a one-to-one -one to the three that i just mentioned in islam that's those are the parallels there so um don't get lost uh in these uh discussions so considering all six of these figures what i found is that um the um the the um Parallels reveal significant theological distinctions when we're really comparing the um, all six uh, figures. The for, let me break it down for you. The Mahdi's pursuit of diver, of justice diverges from the Antichrist's malevolent deception. So notice, even in both uh, religious traditions, Islam and Ju and Christianity, the Mahdi represents somebody who's battling evil, and in the Antichrist. We, we see him as this figure who shows up on the scene originally as a peace giver, as a peace bringer, as a, as a man who's riding the white horse in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 6, and you know with the opening of the um, seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, apocalypse, the first rider on the white horse holding a bow without any arrows, that's the Antichrist, that's the Mahdi. And even Islam recognizes that he's the rider on the white horse right drawing directly from the book of revelation so the mahdi brings justice in their model and the antichrist he's a bad guy uh ultimately in both models in both um in, in uh, both religious traditions likewise i say the islamic expectation of esau's return right jesus return contrasts with the biblical portrayal of the false prophet as a purveyor of falsehood so they have their own biblical version of jesus it's important to understand that the islamic version and understanding of jesus right the biblical character known as jesus who they call esau he's not the son of god he's not divine he's a human being who was taken alive into heaven so he never died and because he didn't die he did not provide redemption by his blood there was no atoning work for him to do he never accomplished that so he's not the savior of the world he did not save you from your personal sin and shame like christianity teaches their version of jesus is stripped of his title as son of god as the as uh the incarnate god and as the messiah who brings redemption right so he he's a, he's a different jesus but he's still the historical character that they read about in the bible so that's where we have some comparisons and contrasts and then lastly in the short little essay I, I mentioned that the dajjal's false messiah status stands in direct opposition to the redemptive role of jesus christ in christian 
theology. So there's the one-to-one correlation there. They have their bad guy, right? Their Joker character who's who needs to do battle against Batman and Robin. And in so doing, they have their their expectation that the good guys are going to defeat the bad guy. In their eschatological story, there is a battle that takes place between the good guys and the bad guy. And in the story, they expect the good guys to win. Well, in biblical eschatology, when you read through the book of Revelation, we have the Antichrist and the false messiah as bad guys, the dynamic duel, but bad, right? So uh, an evil Batman and an evil Robin, not good guys, but bad guys. So Antichrist and false false prophet, they are the bad pair, the bad duo, and they do battle against the good guy, Jesus Christ, who comes back on a white horse to defeat them. And so the, the parallel similarity is that the good guy wins in both religious eschatological narratives the bad guys the bad guy or the bad uh, component gets defeated it's just if, in case you can't tell what we're talking about is a complete almost reverse reversal of who the good guys and who the bad guys truly are remember according to islam the dajjal is actually a man who shows up on the scene claiming to be jesus seeking to deceive people and to convert people away from the true religion of islam into the false religion of christianity or judaism and therefore he's going to win many jews and christians over to his religion which according to islam is a false religion so that's that's the way to kind of try to make sense of how they see that the good guy and the bad guy do battle and the good guys win and the bad guy eventually loses so as i'm drawing this study to a close we're, we're about 10 minutes uh before the hour is up um, and I might end just a little early for this part tonight. I don't want to jump into Joel Richardson's uh, material just yet. Maybe I'll just give you a, a wet your appetite towards it. But let me provide this final paragraph in my own um, short essay here uh, because I want, as I'm winding down, I, I want to emphasize this point again. I don't want people to misunderstand my approach here. I'm bringing in this topic of Islam not for the purpose of, of um, not, in, not the purpose of revealing how evil and wicked uh, and demonic they are, or something of that sort. I have my own um, understanding of who Islam represents in the end time scenario and the story, and and most Christians do as well. But to the degree that Muslims are humans, just like all of us, just like we Christians, right? They're they're humans, and they have to face God someday, just like I do. There's a coming judgment day, according to the Bible. And all men have to face God and give an account of what they believe and how they live their life in accordance to those beliefs. So, to the degree that Christians are not perfect, we don't have a complete, under, a perfect understanding of who God is and the way His Word is put together. We approach God in faith. We believe that Jesus is the one true uh, Messiah that brings genuine salvation and a, and a genuine relationship with God. And therefore, we believe that the Bible is the only true representation of truth in the world objective truth. Therefore, we're going to do our best to witness to those who are not believers, such as ours, right? We, we meet people of other faiths and other religions, and while we respect their religion and their faith, at the same time, we're going to have this desire to witness to them. At least we should. Why? Because we've been given this great commission to take this truth and to take it into all the world. So, we've got the great commission, right? That is our mandate, to spread the good news, to share the gospel, the good news that only Jesus can save you. Only his truth is going to stand in the end. But to the degree that Islam brings some 
um, meaningful discussion to the table, I'm open to dialogue in that regards. I'm not going to just kick people to the curb and say, what are you crazy? You heretic, you, you false believer, you, you, um, you know, you devil get away from me. That that's not the approach I'm trying to take. So I don't want you to view this as some, um, again, I'm not trying to demonize, uh, Islam. I'm not trying to, um, slam Muslims as, as people, as far as I can tell, um, most Muslims are just good-loving people, and they're seeking to uh, live peaceably with others. They have their differences. They have their own religious beliefs. They have their own scriptures, their tradition, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But um, they want many of the same things that I want. So with that being said, in these last uh, eight minutes or so, let me um, read this final paragraph, and, and perhaps you can sense that as you uh, listen to this, as I pen these words. These are my own thoughts. Engaging in these comparative analyses deepens our understanding of both Islamic eschatology and biblical prophecy. Yeah, it really does. And I'm not saying you have to be an expert on Islamic eschatology. You really don't. But to the degree that biblical eschatology involves end-time scenarios that are likely to envelop the entire world one day, then we owe it to ourselves as Christians to be at least familiar with some of the um, key players in Islamic eschatology, et cetera, et cetera. And I say that because of the relationship between Islam and Christianity itself. Recall that there are multiple religions in the world today that have no real interaction with Christianity. There's no parallel going on, right? As far as I can tell, Buddhism uh, and, and religions like that, there's no parallel with Christianity. There's no interaction that takes place between Christians and Buddhists with shared scriptures, shared, shared traditions, shared eschatological um, uh, outtakes and, and, and um, uh, uh, narratives and, and figures and signs and things like that. There aren't any of those, all right? I just mentioned Buddhism because that's the first one that popped into my head. Sure, that any you can fill in the blank with any number of religions. But when we look at the three main Abrahamic religions in the world today, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, there are a lot of shared parallels and similarities between those religions. Um, we all have roots in Abraham. That's why I call them Abrahamic faiths. To to some degree or another, we're all all of us are monotheistic in our belief. We believe in one God, all three of us, the all three religions. And at least two of us, the Christian and Islamic religions, we have strongly developed eschatological scenarios that involve a key player coming onto the scene to usher in an era of of peace and prosperity but not without a fight a culmination of a final um uh judgment and 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 things like that so that's the kind of the the scope of the narrative that we're dealing with here and that's what i want you guys not to lose sight of i go on to say in closing while recognizing shared themes i believe it's crucial to acknowledge the theological divergences that stem from differing scriptural interpretations, right? We all have our religious scriptures, and we all interpret them in our own ways, according to our own understanding of what those scriptures mean. So, we all have access to the same materials. I could go to the store and buy a Quran and read it for myself, walk away with my own understanding of what I just read. Likewise, a Muslim can go to the store and buy a Bible and read it and walk away with an understanding according to his own um, experience, etc., etc. So um, that's the point I'm trying to bring up. I go on to say, by fostering dialogue 
and respectful engagement, I believe that we can appreciate the complexity of eschatological perspectives and gain insights into the diverse paths that believers tra traverse while contemplating, these are my own thoughts, while contemplating the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for humanity. So don't misunderstand my approach here as I'm saying this in closing. I'm not on my high horse to throw other religions under the bus and to, to, to expose all the errors. Uh, in truth, I do believe that other religions have their own um, good that they can bring to a discussion, right? There's some, some value, some pros, you could say, that, that can be highlighted. And there are things that we can learn from one another as religious followers of our own particular religion, religions as we learn to get along and make this world a better place for each other. So I'm, I'm recognizing that. What I am not advocating is some form of harmonizing or syncretism between the religions. I'm not ad advancing that thought. I'm not suggesting that that's what we need to do. I'm not suggesting that Islam and Christianity somehow need to merge, shake hands with one another, and um, share recipes, swap recipes, as it, as it were, so that we can um uh both learn to advance our own religious agendas or something like that i'm not talking about any sort of syncretism between the two um uh, that that doesn't work either i'm simply talking about respecting one another from a mutual um position of of uh realizing that we're all in the same boat when it comes to uh, dealing with truth and dealing with a God who that we're going to have to face one day. There's only one God who created all things. He is our creator, whether you're religion A, B, or C. And so there's only one way to properly understand this God. I am going to over and over advocate that that is through the Bible, through the only authoritative truth that exists out there. All other um, scriptural traditions bring measured amounts of truth, a little bit of truth, and a lot of error or a little bit of error you know, depending, so which religion you're looking at. So that's really going to be it for um, uh, this particular uh, uh, topic that we looked at tonight. This is just kind of a, a, a wetting your appetite into this topic, exploring parallels and contrasts. The Islamic Mahdi, the Muslim Jesus Isa, and the Dajjal in relation to the biblical Antichrist, false prophet, and Jesus Christ. Let's look at my topical schedule real quick. Just remember, we're in Topic 7, Excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. So, starting next week, we'll begin to look at Mr. Richardson's book um, on the um, Islamic Antichrist. And I'm going to jump straight into uh, Chapter 5, eventually, as you can see on your screen, comparing the biblical Antichrist and the Mahdi. That's where we're going to get a lot of our discussion. I'm not really going to do any deep dives into the, the, the Muslim Jesus, Esau, and the Dajjal, per se. Since this is a topic about the Antichrist and the biblical figure known as the Antichrist, right? We've already looked at Van Campen's view. Now let's allow Mr. Van, Mr. Richardson to present us with a perspective that I can promise you most Christians have never heard of. The Islamic version of Antichrist. But that's going to do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well.
these uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, tour teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Aryabhan Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes and continue looking at the topic that we are um, investigating. We are uh, dealing with biblicalunitarian.com's article on Psalm 110, verse 1. And last week I read this 12-part summary of their position. You can see it on my screen right now. We're dealing with Psalm 110.1. I'm just going to kind of slowly scroll through uh, some of what I presented. I'm not going to read it all verbatim, but the, the gist is that they believe, Biblical Unitarian believes that Psalm 110 is presenting a human Messiah who is has been exalted by God and sits at the right hand of God, but according to not only the Masoretic tradition of transmitting the original Hebrew and then the Greek, but also in preserving the oral um, pronunciations of the Hebrew terminology, Biblical Unitarianism firmly believes, Biblical Unitarian firmly believes that these uh, uh, descriptions of uh, the Bible text uh, firmly confirm their own suspicion that that we're dealing with a human, and particularly they're going to deal with these Hebrew terms Adoni and Adonai, and the Greek terms uh, Kurios and uh, Tokuriomu and things like that. We'll get into all those technical into all those technicalities in time, but first, what I want to do is just look at the passage in English. And then tonight, I think I will read the Hebrew, and then maybe I'll read the uh, the Greek as well. On your screen right now, we have NASB version of Psalm 110.1. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
it's not even really the whole verse that's in question. It's the only the first clause, the Lord, or the, the clause that comes out of the introduction. The Lord says to my Lord, that phrase itself, where we have two Lords. We have L-O-R-D, I can see on your screen, and I'll cap in all caps. Then we have capital L and then smaller case O-R-D. And those are the English representations of certain Hebrew words. So according to Biblical Unitarian, the first all caps L-O-R-D is Yahweh, which we'll see here in a moment in the Hebrew. And the second L-O-R-D is the human Messiah, Jesus. And he's been told to sit at the right hand of God until God makes uh, enemies of the Messiah, uh, makes a footstool under the feet of, of uh, Messiah himself, you know, turns his enemies into a footstool. So when we look at the uh, the Hebrew here that I've got pulled up on the right side that I just scrolled over to the right side of the screen, we have Le David Mizmor, the first two words in Hebrew reading from right to left. That's the Psalm of David. And then we have Neum Yahweh, Neum Yahweh, right here. Neum Yahweh, the word of the Lord or the oracle of the Lord, Yahweh, where ordinarily we had capital L-O-R-D, now we suddenly have the tetragrammaton name of God right there. So, Neum Yahweh, and then it continues, La Adoni, or Ladoni, if you want to make the liaison sound a little more accurate. So, Neum Yahweh Ladoni, the Lord says to Ladoni, my Lord, unto le, the preposition Adoni. This is what we see over here on this side of the screen. Ladoni is the uh, translation of my Lord or the Lord of me. Um, and so, is this Lord a divine Lord or is this Lord a human Lord? Well, that's what Biblical Unitarian wants to preach to us and, and teach us, that this Adoni is always rendered in the Hebrew Bible as the human uh, agent. Some could be an exalted type of human, could be an, a very important human, but it's not a divine human. So, Neum Ladoni, shave Limini, right? Sit uh, sit at my right hand, Limini, Ad Ashit Oivecha Adom Leraglacha, tongue twister there at the very end. So, this is the passage in question, and again, the the clause that's really going to getting the most mileage in our discussions are the words that I've got highlighted. Those three words: Neum, Yahweh, Ladoni. The Lord said to my Lord. When we look at the same passage in the Greek Septuagint, we have on your screen right now um, another rendering of an English translation that's resemblance of a kind of a modified KJV. Yahweh said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." Notice in this rendering. The word Lord here is represented by a capital L, but lowercase o-r-d. In Biblical Unitarian's own revised English version, they make the Lord here as a lowercase Lord. I'll show you that to you in a, maybe in a screen grab. And then we have the uh, the Hebrew once again uh, for the uh, the clause in question. Neum Yahweh Ladoni, the Lord said to my Lord. And then we go down to the bottom there, two representations of the Greek uh, the Alexandrinus on the left side of your screen, and the Vaticanus on the right side of the screen. And for the most part, 
they are identical with some slight differences you know toe david salmas is how the uh, uh alexandrinus opens up but salmas toe david is how the vaticanus opens up but after that they both read basically the same right apen hakurios to kurio mu um the lord said to my lord let me blow that up on the screen so you can see so using the alexand uh the alexandrinus here the one that was on the left the clause in question here apen ha kurios to kurio mu said the lord or yahweh the lord of me or to the lord of me and so in greek we have the first kudios here being a representation of Yahweh from the Hebrew, Y-H-V-H, Tetrachrammaton name. So kudios here is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? That's God, the Father. And then the second kudio mu, or the Lord of me, or we smooth it out by saying my Lord. The second Lord of me is the human jesus that biblical unitarian says well here's proof because even in the greek the words are different it doesn't say apen ha kurios to kurios as if it was god speaking to god or something to that effect they would imagine that if it was apen ha kurios to kurios then it would be something to the effect of the lord said to the lord or god said to god thus god was speaking to himself or speaking to another person of himself just like Trinitarians say. But instead it says Apen Hokurios to Kuriomu. And so to Kuriomu, in their opinion, is proof positive that it's a another Lord, but in a lesser sense in the in the in the category of a human Lord. Kuriomu. It's still the same root word as you can probably hear it. Kurio and Kurios share the same root words, but because it's rendered as Tokuriomu, the Lord of me then according to biblical Unitarian's understanding this is proof all right so that's kind of what we're dealing with in the uh the verse in question so having said that let's look now at um a couple of different resources the first one i want to use is psalm 110's uh, explanation by wikipedia yeah a non-theological explanation i present this first because they're going to try to at least present this verse barely in in a non non-partisan i believe i'm using that word correctly in a way where they're saying we don't have a christian x to grind we don't have a biblical unitarian x to grind we don't have a trinitarian x to grind we're not trying to present a trinitarian versus non-trinitarian we just want to present the material fairly and show you how both sides are representative in this discussion so i thought i'd pick on them first Psalm 110. This article is about Psalm 110 in Hebrew, Masoretic numbering for Psalm 110 in Greek, Septuagint or Latin, Vulgate numbering, see this link, Psalm 110, 111. We might look at that in time. But for now, Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord. All right, this is um, Wikipedia. And so let's see what they have to say about this particular matter. Psalm 110 is the 110th Psalm of the Book of Psalms, beginning in English in the King James Version. Quote, the Lord said unto my Lord. Notice the, the capital L-O-R-D in contrast to the capital L lowercase O-R-D. In Latin, it is known as Dixit Dominus, the Lord said. According to Wikipedia, it's considered both a royal psalm and a messianic psalm. According to um, C.S. Rod, associates it with the king's coronation. And all of these 
uh, references inside of Wikipedia. They've got footnoting that you can go back and look at on your own. Uh, they continue, in the slightly differing numbering system used in the Greek, Septuagint, and Latin Vulgate translations of the Bible, this psalm is uh, Psalm 109. So it's 109 in the Vulgate, it's 110 in your Christian versions, and then in the, in the Hebrew and in the um, uh, Septuagint, it's Psalm 111. Okay, let's keep reading Wikipedia. They go on to say that this psalm is a cornerstone in Christian theology. And I mentioned this earlier, uh, is that um, this psalm is used more than any other psalm in the New Testament. Second, here we go. Uh, Wikipedia continues, as it is cited as proof of the plurality of the Godhead and Jesus' supremacy as king, priest, and Messiah. So right away, Wikipedia is bringing this information before us that Christianity regards this psalm as a verse that, due to its um, ubiquitous use in the Apostolic Scriptures, right, it's used quite often. Among other things, it's utilized to present not just the human side of our Messiah King, the human side of Jesus, but ultimately the supremacy as king, priest, and Messiah within the plurality of Godhead. Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit, God, or God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God, three persons. That's what we mean by plurality of Godhead. So, Wikipedia continues by saying, for this reason, Psalm 110 is, quote, the most frequently quoted or referenced psalm in the New Testament, end quote. And so, that seems to make good sense, that the writers of the Apostolic Scriptures, right, this is part of our first hint into, as I'm trying not to tip my hand too early, part of our first clue into how did the Apostolic writers, the New Testament writers, view this psalm? Were they biblical Unitarians, like the uh, that denomination wants us to believe? Or instead, were they what I say as experiential Trinitarians? They experienced the incarnation and God walking among men as the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, like John teaches in his first chapter, John 1. They experienced the incarnation and God among men, right? Emmanuel, God with us. They experienced Jesus and thus the writers of the Apostolic Scriptures, right? The apostles, predominantly um, Paul and those other writers, they came to understand by not just their own experience and under and uh, 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 dialogue with Yeshua, but also because of the the Holy Spirit confirming this and and empowering them with eyes opened to understand that Jesus is very God and yet He's fully human. He's truly God and truly man. When we say He's a hundred percent God and hundred percent man. Some people object, right? The, the mathematicians write into me and they say, foul, 100% plus 100% is, the math is wrong. You know, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, not 1. So, I understand the paradox there, the, the challenge of presenting this type of mystery, this Mysterian theology. But the only point I'm trying to highlight before we continue with Wikipedia is that the New Testament writers had already come to the understanding that when they read through their Tanakh, now with eyes open to the reality of the mystery being revealed, the mystery that was previously hidden to human beings, to humankind, but now revealed to man through the power of the Spirit, and one of that one aspect of that mystery was the mystery of the Incarnation. 
the mystery of the plurality of, of the Godhead, the mystery that God is uh, human in the person of Jesus, but yet he's still transcendent as God the Father. So, when they quoted the uh, passages out of the Old Testament and brought them into their New Testament writings as in support of their understanding of Trinitarian theology, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the point I'm trying to make, make aware to you. So, this is the point I think that biblical Unitarians sorely gets wrong. They simply do not give the New Testament writers the credit of having eyes opened to the mystery. Apparently, biblical Unitarians' eyes are still closed to that mystery. Or, they believe that the mystery is still hidden. Even if they acknowledge mystery, which I'm not sure if they do or not. I'll have to have to dialogue with, with a, a biblical Unitarian to find out. But the point I'm bringing up as an, as an Orthodox biblical Trinitarian author myself, a, Bible, a, a believer, is that mystery existed in the Old Testament, so it makes sense why they didn't fully understand God's nature, but has been revealed to humans that Jesus is very God in flesh. In Psalm 110.1, where the Lord says to my Lord, is offered up in the New Testament as one of those proof texts to show that the Lord by that time, had already been understand in the New Testament uh, era as God and yet mysteriously more than God. So Wikipedia continues, classical Jewish sources in contrast state that the subject of the psalm is either Abraham or David or the Jewish Messiah like a biblical Unitarian uh, is bringing to the discussion as well. Okay, so that makes sense. Let's continue. Wikipedia says the psalm forms a regular part of Jewish Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, and other Protestant liturgies. Because this psalm is prominent in the Office of Vespers, its Latin text has particular significance in music. Well-known Vesper settings are Monte Verdi's Vespro Dea Beta Virginia. I'm, I'm probably butchering that um, uh, Italian there if it is Italian, and Mozart's uh, Vespere, I'm not going to try and, you can, you guys can see it on the screen, I'm not going to try and um, pretend like I know how to pronounce these particular Vesper names, but um, this is how uh, Psalm 110 factors into music, and then we also have Handel uh, composing his uh, Dixit Dominus in 1707, and Vivaldi set the psalm in Latin three times. So, um, lots of musical traditions that have also uh, used Psalm 110 as their particular uh, uh, inspiration for their musical numbers there. Let's keep deep reading. This is the background behind the psalm. The psalm is usually dated, according to Wikipedia, in its first part in the pre-exilic period of Israel, sometimes even completely in the oldest monarchy. Okay. Not a lot uh, to look at here. By way of text, Hebrew Bible versions. Following is the Hebrew text of Psalm 110 uh, from Wikipedia, and you can see it's been reproduced there. I already read the Hebrew, so I'm not going to read that again, but there's Psalm 110 in Hebrew. Let's jump over to the um, KJV, where they talk about, uh, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We're not going to deal with it tonight, but eventually, let me drop down to verse 5. You'll notice that the Lord is mentioned in verse 5 again right here, where I've got it highlighted. And it reads in verse 5 from the KJV, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Eventually, in time, we're going to see that even though in your English Bible, the word Lord here resembles the Lord mentioned in verse 1, right? So, remind yourself, what does that look like? Capital L, lower O-R-D, 
And then when you go back up to verse 1, we have the second Lord rendering looking similar, capital L, lowercase r, d. What your English translations aren't very good at revealing sometimes is that there are differing Hebrew words and indeed differing different um, Strong's numbers for these two lords here. Uh, so indeed, we end up with um, three different representations of Lord, Lord, and Lord, but there's only two persons. So I'll just tell you what, right up front what they are. The first, capital L-O-R-D, is Yahweh in the Hebrew, Y-H-V-H, the tetragram, it's the name of God, all caps Lord. The second, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is Adoni from the Hebrew, which is um, understood to be the human Messiah according to the biblical Unitarian model. And then in verse 5, the capital L, lowercase O-R-D, here is actually, according to most, most people, God, again, the Father. And indeed, the Hebrew has Adonai instead of Adoni. But instead of having Yahweh, it's actually rendered in the Hebrew as Adonai, not Adoni. So don't get confused. There's Yahweh, there's Adoni, and there's Adonai, three different spellings from the Hebrew, right? Y-H-V-H, A-D-O-N-I, and then A-D-O-N-A-I, three different spellings in the, uh, from the Hebrew. But in the English, it looks, they, they all look very similar, Lord, Lord, and Lord. So that's kind of what's going on. All right, I'm not going to read all of those verses. Um, and we're, we're kind of speeding through some of this uh, uh explanation from wikipedia because we don't want to spend too much time on it but um here's what they have to say really verse one is where we're going to get the most mileage out of our discussion on this particular topic so verse one the lord says to my lord now notice at this point in time you can see that the lord the first lord is simply capital l lowercase o-r-d and then says to my lowercase l-o-r-d sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet and so i don't remember off the top of my head uh which version that is let me i'm hovering over the footnote um see which bible version it didn't say but nevertheless eventually we'll get to it maybe do i have it here no not yet eventually what we'll end up uh seeing is that um there are many different christian versions that render this verse differently according to who they understand the players to be. Nearly everyone believes the first Lord here is Yahweh, God the Father. It, the only question is on who the second Lord is, and some people have differences on who the third Lord is in verse 5. But for the most part, this discussion is on verse 1. All right, so let's read what Wikipedia has to say about uh, some of the Hebrew behind what we're looking at. Here's Wikipedia again. Adoni, which is Lord, uh, lowercase L-O-R-D, in, most, in many Bibles, Adoni may be translated as my master or my Lord, lowercase L-O-R-D, thus rendering verse 1 as the Lord spoke to my master, right? This is what Biblical Unitarian is arguing for. Wikipedia continues, throughout the Hebrew Bible, Adoni refers to a human or angelic master or Lord. And notice the word master is lowercase m and Lord is lowercase l. That's because, according to Biblical Unitarian, the psalmist is writing about a human master. Although, this human master, according to the, the, the psalmist, either must not exist yet, or is going to exist someday, and yet is being shown the future 
this human master who's going to sit at the right hand of God, the exalted Messiah. So David is looking forward by the Spirit into the future when one day his descendant will be raised up as the Messiah and even exalted to sit at the right hand of God, the Father himself. That is the Lord speaking to the Lord of David. And of course, in time, we're going to turn how we're going to turn to the passage where Yeshua challenges those Pharisaic leaders uh, with this idea of, well, how can the Messiah be the son of David and yet be the master of David at the same time? And it was a um, a challenge, a puzzle, a quiz, a trick, a trap question, almost trick question from the master himself, who is the Messiah of what do the Jews think about this person? So we'll get to that in time, but uh, let's keep reading Wikipedia for now. Since David wrote the psalm in the third person to be sung by the Levites in the uh, temple in Jerusalem, from a Jewish perspective, so we're going to deal with their uh, view as well. From a Jewish perspective, the Levites would be saying that the Lord spoke to my master, i.e. to David. So this is another perspective. The Lord said to my Lord, i.e. to David who is obviously a human Lord. So Judaism brings this perspective where they're saying, well, it is a human Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, but because it's the Levites who are going to be singing this psalm in their, um, in, in their uh, um, representation, when they, when they rec- in their recitation, when they say these words, then because it's the Levites who are going to be singing the psalm and presenting it, uh, you know, third person when they're reciting it, then when they say the Lord spoke to my Lord, they're not saying that the my Lord is the Messiah who's to come. They're saying that the my Lord is the King of Israel himself, David. So that's a different perspective, which again makes the uh, makes us understand why the Lord is understood in the lowercase L O R D as a human person. It's just that the difference between biblical Unitarian and uh, rabbinic Judaism is who this human Lord is. Biblical Unitarian, being a Christian denomination, says that it's the Lord Jesus, the human Messiah Jesus, who's been exalted at the right hand, sits at the right hand of God now. And yet, Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, being non-Messianic, non-Christian, is going to not accept that it's Jesus sitting at the right hand who's been exalted by God, sits at the right hand, it's not him. It's the earthly King David that was being referred to. Okay, let's keep reading Wikipedia for this next. We've got about five minutes left in this uh, uh, unit of discussion for this particular study. Wikipedia says, however, the King James Version and many subsequent Christian translations capitalize the second word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, implying that it refers to Jesus, which is the position I'm taking as well. As the Capital L-O-R-D, which is God the Father, is speaking to another Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Henry postulates that the two distinct divine persons are involved, namely God and Jesus. And I believe he's talking about uh, Henry, uh, Matthew Henry, I believe. Um, the, the Christian commentary that you can get for free online just about anywhere. So, um Wikipedia continues. Henry further claims that in this psalm, David is acknowledging Christ's sovereignty and his, David's, subservience to him. 
Jesus himself quoted this verse during his trial before the Sanhedrin, Matthew 26, 64, referring to himself, and Acts 2, 34, 36 states that this verse was fulfilled in the ascension and exaltation of Christ. So we can see uh, right away, let me stay on that part there, we can see right away that Christianity is going to take their cue not just from what the apostolic scriptures say about this particular verse, but also take their cue from the reality that when Jesus walked and talked and lived, lived with us, he was revealing himself as the human Messiah, but he also at key moments revealed himself to be the divine Messiah. So here's the point I'm going to keep highlighting in these discussions with Biblical Unitarian. As they try to convince me that Jesus is 100% human and only human, I'm going to counter their um, offer with my own understanding that the Bible presents Jesus to be truly human as well as truly divine. He's fully human and fully divine at the same time. The incarnation principle is what I believe biblical Unitarian fails to grasp. Indeed, indeed, it's the component that they either purposely reject or unknowingly reject, right? They ignorantly reject it or misunderstand it. I'm not sure which one. I don't want to judge them. I'm not one here to um, throw them under the bus for that, that misunderstanding. Rather, I'm simply having these dialogues with my imaginary biblical Unitarian opponent so that we can come to a better understanding and both sharing the experience of growing in our knowledge and appreciation of the complex God that we serve. To be sure, I'm a biblical Trinitarian, right? I'm not a biblical Unitarian, I'm a biblical Trinitarian. But guess what? I don't fully understand God. I don't understand Him um, completely either. I have some creeds that articulate a better understanding of Him. I have certain Bible passages that give me a what I would call a convictional stance on who I believe God is, and so because the Bible portrays this, the Bible teaches it, I accept the authoritative Word of God, but honestly, honestly, I'm confessing, I, I don't fully understand how God can be three in one and three at the same time. He's three, yet one, yet three. I don't fully comprehend that, but I do affirm it, and I embrace it as a convictional belief. So, let's keep looking at this from... Um, Wikipedia's perspective, I'm just kind of scrolling past some of their um, uh, explanations. Um, let's begin to look at... Do I want to jump into this? Let me let me scroll down through it real quick. Judaism, Christianity, priest, king, uses, Judaism, New Testament, Protestantism, Book of Common Prayer, Catholicism, musical settings. They have a lot in this article that I'm not really that interested in, per se. But let me scroll back up uh, to uh, where we left off. I actually do want to eventually look at these interpretations uh, just a bit more um, in time. So in these last uh, 60 seconds or so, uh, we're going to be begin to just appreciate the interpretation from Judaism. We'll appreciate the interpretation from Christianity. And... Um, Within the Christian interpretation, that's what we're going to be talking about, Biblical Unitarian's perspective as well. But that'll do it for now. We'll stop and leave off here with Wikipedia's explanation, and that'll do it for um, a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Abba, I'm thankful for the fact that you gave us your word, you presented truth to us, and then you sent your Holy Spirit to unlock the meanings. 
Indeed, how can we expect to understand your words and your very life, uh, Messiah, unless we accept the, the, the Spirit of the Messiah that was sent, the Spirit of God Himself, unless He comes into our heart and unlocks the understanding to our minds? We will forever be in the dark if we don't embrace the reality of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So, Lord, thank you for coming and living and dying and being resurrected for me and for us and for presenting yourself as the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, that presents the um, atonement that is necessary in the New Testament experience, the, the New Covenant reality. It is indeed um, uh, paramount that we as human beings uh, interact with you on this level in the new in the, in the new covenant reality. There's simply no way to to grasp uh, any type of understanding of who God is or what's going to be taking place in the end times uh, or any of of the Bible's uh, major points of discussion without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we embrace that reality as believers and we do not reject it. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to raise us up and to give us a better understanding of these um, particular topics. Go with us uh, this week and help us to be ambassadors and to be salt and to be light where needed. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel, this good news that you've given to us. Help us to uh, be bold witnesses for your kingdom and for your name, building up your name and pointing centers to repentance. Build all the while building up the Messianic community and continue to pray and to support one another in Messianic sympathy. Uh, continue to provide for us and protect us and give us a voice in these very dark and evil days, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua, O Maine.